0: Welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. With me, Sean Delaney. I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator, and my book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, which was published by Routledge, is now available as an audiobook, as well as in hard copy and Kindle formats. You can follow Inside Education on Twitter where I use the handle at InsideEd. And you can get in touch by writing to Inside Education Podcast at yahoo.com. You can download or listen to 417 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on podcasts. This week on the podcast, I find out more about autism and education by speaking to a post-primary teacher with several years teaching experience and to a researcher who is specialised in studying assessment and special needs among young children, especially in relation to autism. Graeme Manning teaches autistic students in a post-primary special class in Cork. According to his Twitter account, he is a campaigner re-same and annoyer of politicians. Dr. Steffi van der Steen is Associate Professor in the Faculty of Behavioural and Social Sciences at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. She is interested in interactions between children and adults and between children and animals, especially among children with autism and Down syndrome. In relation to language use, one thing that became apparent quite early in our conversation was that Graham tended to use the term autistic children on the basis that most of the children he taught preferred that description. That is consistent with the language used by Adam Harris when he appeared as a guest on Inside Education. In contrast, Steffi was more inclined to use the term students with autism. I tended to vary my language use depending on whether my question was addressed to Graham or to Steffi. You'll really like this week's episode if you're interested in the education of students with autism. The insights on the podcast combine perspectives from the practice of teaching and from the rigour of research. Graham shares ideas from an Irish perspective, whereas Steffi's are grounded in her work in the Netherlands. When I met up with Steffi van der Steen and Graeme Manning via Zoom, I began by asking Graham to tell me how he began teaching autistic students.
1: Well, I'm entirely an accidental teacher and um, my mom wanted to be a teacher. So obviously I insisted there is no way I'm ever doing that. And then at the time I was actually meant to be joining the police and there was a recession. So they paused that. So I was like, well, I have to do something. I had a bit of experience of subbing and where you're just replacing teachers out sick you didn't have to be qualified you needed a degree in anything which is very scary and I'd been acting principal of a special needs school in that context which was also terrifying uh, that that would be allowed to happen and so I basically while I was waiting to join the guards I got my teaching qualification and straight out of that I got a maternity leave job in the uh, school I'm in now and during that year that school was planning and what turned out to be the first uh, or the second autism special class in our county in Cork and at the time Uh, because there wasn't much financial stability in subbing, I was also working nights as a care assistant in a residential um, placement for autistic adults. And so I knew a bit about autism. So as the school was getting getting used to the idea, and they were having different meetings about things, I found people were asking me loads of questions. And I'm like, you know, I'm no authority at all, I just knew like a tiny bit more than maybe uh, someone around the mill, And in that context, the uh, management school at the time asked me, look, will you apply for this job? Because uh, obviously my contract was ending. Uh, will you apply for the job, but you can't get it? Uh, we have to give it to someone qualified, but you'll basically be, the qualified person will be number one, number two, you'll be number three. I'm like, well, why am I sitting in the interview if I know where I'm coming? But anyway, so that happened. I got placed third on the list. The person who was second turned the job down. So uh, I was sitting in a pool bar in uh, Havana and I got a phone call saying, you know, you've got the job. Can you be in tomorrow? And I'm like, no, I'll be in next week. Uh, a bit busy. And um, I was the second teacher when we first started off. We were kind of lucky in that we were very heavily over-resourced. So a special class, if it's full, has six students, 1.5 teachers, and two SNAs when they start off. We started off with just two students, so a third of our cohort. And we were given two full-time teachers, which is more than any class. And they gave it to us in writing. so they've repeatedly tried to get it back in the camp anymore it's ours and an SNA started at the time first three years I was just the other teacher in the class uh, not just but you know that's my that job and uh, the previous coordinator left and I um, I kind of told the principal I was taking the job <laughs> and I have since kind of basically designed my own job so on a day-to-day bit like I run we have um three autism classes at the moment that's 18 students now They're not grouped in sixes or anything that just decides how many teachers, SNAs, funding, that kind of stuff. But on a day-to-day basis, I'm there full-time. I haven't taught a traditional mainstream class since 2007. I hope to retire, having not having done that again. And not that it's bad or anything, it's just this is much what I prefer. Even the classes I teach aren't really, like I'm an English and history teacher, they're not English and history. It's generally around the student's diagnosis and kind of support that I can provide. So that's it. We have social outing classes, I have social skills classes, and... Key teacher classes, one-to-one with the students, to kind of foster a relationship that if there's an issue, they can come to me kind of thing. There is an absolute mountain of admin that is 50% plus of my job, depending on the day. And then let's say a lot of classes that I tend to base off whatever training I've done. So let's say a couple of years ago, I did training. A lot of our students would have sleep issues. Now, that's a general thing across the whole school. The students I teach, it tends to be even more so. And that was quite obvious among a lot of our students. So I found this training, did a course in it and thought it was brilliant. And it was only kind of two day course, but they gave a whole curriculum that came with it. It was a uh, organization called Sleep Scotland who were paid to come over. I'm actually currently trying to arrange them to come back to Ireland. I've kind of been talking to people about the course. So it seems to be a fair bit of interest. And um, because I kind of control the timetable, so you no, know, it has to be okay by management, but in fairness, you know, I do really control it basically. So five of my classes a week this year, for example, are I'm teaching my students how to sleep. And I teach everybody, whether there's is an issue or not. And then I rang a night. I figured after a little while, wait a second, this makes no sense doing it without teaching the parents. So um, I did a kind of 12 week thing where the parents would come in as well. That's a snippet of how I ended up where I am.
0: OK, well, there's a lot of things to come back to there in a moment and, and, and we'll do that. Uh, but sure. Sophie, if I go to you next, and can you give me a broad overview of how you became interested in working with students with autism?
2: So I'm a researcher uh, in developmental psychology and special education. Um, So uh, I think my career was a little bit different. I I started out after my master's with a a PhD project in which we um, looked at how children reasoned and and, uh, thought about scientific tasks. In this project, we also included children from special schools, so special education context. And I thought it was fascinating. And from then on, when I moved on to next academic jobs and, and other studies and research, I've always included students with autism. So whether we looked at the interaction between a mother and her autistic son, or um, looked at what teachers needed to teach students with autism. Um, but also now I'm working on studies in animal assisted therapy uh, for students with autism as well. Um, so, yeah, from the start on, uh, after my PhD, I've always included them.
0: And Graham has hinted at what the situation is like in Ireland, and we, we will explore that a little bit more. But can you give us a, a broad overview of how autistic students are educated at primary and post-primary levels in the Netherlands?
2: So what is very interesting, and maybe Graham can come back to that, is that he is teaching in a special class. So we don't really have that over here. What we um, did a couple of years ago is that uh, education was very segregated. So students with autism were mostly in special education facilities. Right now, I would say that there's more and more um, inclusive education in the Netherlands, probably worldwide, or at least in in most countries, because we we had something called Salamanca Statement, the UN, in which... Um, it was declared that students should be included as much in regular education as possible. Um, so the situation at the moment in the Netherlands is that students will be taught in a regular elementary schools and regular secondary schools unless the problems are so severe that they won't really be served in these environments and then usually parents have a have a big say in this whether or not to um whether or not they should be enrolled in a special school and before going to special school there are all these other options like hiring an SA, for instance to uh, or ta what is it, <laughs> what, is it? <laughs> what is the administration here uh teaching assistant to help the student in the classroom, for instance, or a special programme. But if the problems are so severe that the teacher really doesn't know how to handle this and it interferes with the, with the development of the student, then special education comes into play. Graeme,
0: you've given us a, a, a view from your own perspective. I wonder, could you give us the view from one of your students' perspective of what their typical day or week is like? if they're attending a special class as part of their, their overall education.
1: That's kind of, how long is a piece of uh, string kind of situated? Because obviously, none of my students have the same timetable in any way. None of them have the same day, none of them have the same week. And even from week to week, it can change, varying depending on the students' needs and stuff like that. But like six years ago, and I said, it obviously the six years in secondary school, so when I had a completely different cohort of students to the 18 I would be working with now. At that time, just because of who applied, it didn't decide enrollment, would have a lot more students who would have had intellectual disabilities and would have had less mainstream inclusion. Now, there still would have been mainstream inclusion for all students, and decisions on that. Myself and my colleagues give um, our professional opinion. Decisions on that are down to the student uh, for in our school anyway, and I think personally it should be everywhere, but yeah, obviously it isn't, are down to the parents and the student. And um, the only way we would ever possibly overrule that would be if there was a health and safety concern. We say that to parents, that has literally never happened. But that is the only situation in which we could possi- we would morally think it right to, that, that we would be allowed to do so. My current cohort of students, and in six years' time, it could be something, something completely different, obviously, just depending on who applies, uh, would have a very high mainstream inclusion. Average would be, if I had, I've never actually worked out the number, but if I had to guess it, it we'd be talking 70% plus of their day and their week is mainstream inclusion. A lot of the supporting classes that we, we would provide When they're outside of mainstream, small group settings have to be one-to-one, one-to-two, three, four, five, very rarely more than that. More and more aren't focused on academics. These particular students, they're quite reasonably strong academically. That's a generalization, not everybody, but generally speaking. So what we're focusing is more on diagnostic-related things and kind of around their own diagnosis, um, how it affects them, how different things affect them, different strategies they can employ, stuff like that. And also, being honest, more generally, just providing valve. Because I'm going to stop saying generally, because obviously everything I say is a generalisation, just specifically applied to every single kid. But the majority of my students, in conversation with myself and other staff, would admit to that when they're inside the mainstream setting, they have some form of mask. They are not quite being their true selves, usually because they're teenagers, and most teenagers don't want to stand out and don't want to be seen as different. For a particular student now, I'm thinking off the top of my head, who have, um quite reasonably acute sensory needs and when they're inside in a mainstream setting it can be quite stressful to maintain that mask when the person next to is moving their seat or the noise coming from the classroom next door that's being a bit rowdy or anything else you can possibly think of and it can be very very tiring to maintain that so at least let's say twice a day out of the nine academic periods in the day at least two of those they're not inside in mainstream they would be down myself or another teacher or something and it's that mask doesn't always slip 100%, but it can significantly, they know themselves that there's nothing they're going to do that I'm going to bat an eyelid at. So I could have a student who would be, seem like, or not seem like, be the model academic student inside the mainstream class. Homework is immaculate, perfect, probably far more informative than is ever necessary. All that kind of stuff. And then, and is literally the most impeccable manners, all this kind of stuff inside in a mainstream setting. And then when they have class with me, a good 20 minutes of that is spent stimming and skipping around the place and having an absolute brilliant time that they would not, would be, which there's nothing wrong with, obviously, but they would be mortified to do that in front of their peers, uh, inside are the, their neurotypical peers. So significantly at the moment, a lot of our classes are basically providing that valve so that you can go to mainstream. So the classes that they're out of, it isn't that they can't academically deal with the content. It's not that at all. It's just the combined pressure of having to do, all the academic content and keeping that mask on all day long is just for a lot of the students absolutely exhausting so that's what we're, we're there to help provide uh, support so they don't need to do that all day every day
0: and would the students that you're working with would most of them have been in a special class in primary school no the majority of the,
1: now some some would have been again the 18 six or seven would have been so a third roughly would have been in a, a special class in the primary setting. The reason, okay, broad strokes, uh, reasoning behind that is when you're in primary school, you were usually sitting in the same seat next to the same person in front of the same teacher for a shorter period of time all day long. It's far more predictable and the routine is a lot more set. You transfer to a secondary environment, you were swapping 10, 11 times a day sitting in a different place next to a different person in front of a different teacher who all have different teaching styles, different volumes, different everything, different physical classroom that you're in, and you're going through puberty. Those two are very, very different environments and states to be in. Take autism out of the equation. Those are very, very different situations. We'd also find that the content at primary, through a significant degree of primary, and it's not trying to be condescending in any way, but it has... Less of, it, less of an abstract nature, and it can be more accessible uh, to a certain quarter students. And as things get more complex, now this doesn't apply because I'm, my students are quite academically able at the moment, um, but that could change again in time, but they tend to be able to engage at the level of their, their uh, mainstream peers through a significant amount of primary school without needing that extra support. Towards the end of primary, it tends to get more, and again, generalization, more difficult, and then in secondary, exponentially more so. And also, look, simple thing, there isn't enough places. So there's plenty of students coming to me who should have been had, had the support of a special class in primary. It just didn't exist.
2: Can I just very quickly say that it's so interesting that, um, um, just to get back to Graham, that his students really prefer also to be in a special class for a certain amount of hours per week, whereas policymakers and government, and etc., think that inclusion is now the way to go. And of course, they are included. They are in a mainstream school, but they are also in a special class. So they, 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 I find it very interesting that they need that space also.
1: Yeah, I would have significant issues with UNCRPD and anything to do with New Brunswick. I will not say, <laughs> not nice, will not say nice things about that at all. Can you say a little bit more about that? The only reason there's kind of somewhat foremost in my mind is the NCSE, National Council for Special Education in Ireland, um, released the draft report, which is to come before the formal completed report in November 2019, uh, basically saying that they were going to recommend that Ireland about adopt the New Brunswick model of full inclusion. That would amount to the abolition of all special classes, all special schools. They said that in November, the report was June, June. It never arrived. Then it was June in January of this year. It never arrived. And uh, about a month ago, they said it won't be arriving. So they have uh, backed down. I would think, a significant... Well, I would imagine there's a variety of factors in uh, yeah, that. Almost universal opposition from parents, uh, or at least that I've had any interaction with, parents and professionals, I would imagine, played some part, part of a role in this as well. It's an easy Googleable thing. Now, there are plenty of issues with New Brunswick, and, and to be very clear, before I go, start tearing bits out of New Brunswick, which I'm going to, um, I'm very much in favor of inclusion, to be very, very clear. Now, meaningful inclusion, not tokenistic putting someone in a room and saying, yeah, aren't we great? It's like, no, there has to be a purpose to it. It doesn't have to be an academic purpose. There has to be a purpose to it. But the New Brunswick system, for example, has no choice in schools. Um, students go to their local school. That is not the case now, and you can go wherever you want. They have access to psychologists, speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, etc., etc., on 10 times the scales. But we do nowhere near that level of support they have far more teachers per head of, pop- of student population they have far more sna's now they call them i think it's tas but you have essentially the same function so they have a far greater resource system and it's not working there was a, a review of it announced recently and it's been running for nine years if it was a successful program, there would be some peer-reviewed research, I would imagine. Steph would probably speak better than that. That after nine years would show some actual analytical data to show that it is effective. Everything I've read has been saying the opposite. And again, the basis for that was uh, apart from coming from Salamanca, but also the UNCRPD, that saying that basically any form of education that was not mainstream inclusion is segregation. Now, I would completely disagree with that. You obviously use my own context and people are going to say well, I'm protecting my job it's like, I'm a teacher in Ireland I can't be fired unless I hit somebody so they could get rid of and I'm obviously not going to be doing that um, but they could get rid of all special classes my, jo- my job is going nowhere my job would change but it wouldn't go anywhere I'm doing it for the benefits of my students now am I going around and saying that there are special classes that are very poorly run and that are very far from best practice and are definitely abusing the resources hell yes I've reported them a number of them to the inspectorate um, and regularly would call out anyone doing any such thing So I'm not saying that the current model is perfect, but there are plenty of models of best practice in the current model. So it can work. It's just massively under-resourced. I mean, we have the worst teacher ratio in the EU by a significant way in the smallest physical classrooms in the EU. And yet our education system usually ranks not at the top. I think That's normally Finland. uh, But we're usually not far off that. So uh, even percentage wise, what we invest in education is a fraction of other countries. And we're getting good results. So if we just had similar, not better, similar resources, I imagine, we would we get exponentially
0: better? And, you know, you mentioned their best practice. So what kinds of good practice or excellent practice have you seen in special classes to support autistic students?
1: Sure. Well, let's say, i use my own example. Um, if we go our trumpet, but, sorry, we are a model of best practice now. There's no such thing as being, you know, done. If you're saying you're like, oh, we're the best at something, we can't get better, then you should stop doing that job. But as I said, our transition programs for our students, I go out and visit every student who, who applies to our school, regardless of whether they're getting a place or not. And um, no, I'd like if everyone got a place, there isn't enough room and there's not enough schools doing what we do. And that turns into a whole different discussion. But everyone who applies, I go out and do, uh, visit. I liaise with every family who apply. And this can be kind of 30, 40 a year. So I can take up a fair bit of my uh, work. I talk to all of their teachers, principal, mainstream teacher, resource teacher, SNA. All reports, I ask for take copies of, obviously anyone unsuccessful, no, parents can refuse, obviously they don't have to give me this stuff, other than they need a report to confirm uh, the student's diagnosis. Beyond that, they don't have to give me reams and reams of information. I generally prefer to read more and it not be relevant than to not read something and miss something that I could have used to support the student, but that's a parental decision. Primary schools do transition reports for us because the vast majority of students we have coming in reports that are significantly out of date. To the point of, well, obviously they're still autistic, because yeah, that doesn't change. But they could be from the report. I've got a twelve-year-old in front of me, and it's the report's woman. The kid is four. The rest of the information is largely meaningless, because you know, just like everybody else, they change and develop. So I ask the primary school to do out um, up-to-date reports, and I give them exa- an example of complete, an anonymized completed one, so they know what it should look like. Then in February we have an evening where we bring all the students in. Now COVID has changed that, we still manage to do it differently, where all the students get to meet each other. They come into the empty school building. It's me, them, whatever family members they want to bring, occasional pet, as long as you know, people have to clean up after I've gotten in trouble for that before. And I give show them around the classrooms where they would be not be in a mainstream, when they're not in mainstream where they would be. I give a big a spiel on just what their day is going to be like. I answer any questions. Some kids are full of questions. Some kids are absolutely terrified of me or anywhere in between. And we do a tour of the school where we kids do videos. If they don't do videos, I have a video of the whole place that I send them anyway. They come in at the end of the school year for the last two weeks, uh, Mondays and Tuesdays of the last two weeks, where they spend four or five classes on each of those days. In our homeroom context, they wouldn't be going to a mainstream setting yet because they're not formally students. Um, Staff from their existing school have to come with because technically they're not my student yet. And usually they get to hang around and have teas and coffees and cake and stuff like that. And it's more there as reassurance. By that point, the child will know me, but I'm not the person they look to to fix issues. So if something goes wrong, they want to be able to know X is here to fix it. Nothing's ever gone wrong. But now the, the one time, you know, the not having the person there is the thing potential trigger for the anxiety that could lead to something not going wrong or ruin the experience of the child. They have lots of classes. Those, through those classes, they have one or two a day meet where we make a booklet on the whole school. Now we have to do that differently this year. i am just finished posting them out. and doing a Zoom class with all these uh, kids next uh, Monday week. Then we run uh, July provision, which is a summer program for our existing students that any incoming students are invited on as well. So they get to know some of the kids they're going to be around. And that's basically an outline. That was more detailed, but an outline of a best practice example of how we run transitions. In we do the same things for our students leaving. So I've got students heading off to third level. In our expect, we haven't got results yet, but I'd be very surprised if they're not. And um, heading off to third level, we as long as the location is up, open to it, which is rare, anyone would say no. We'll be sending staff with those students. Um, for the first week, first two weeks are within reason as long as they need, you know, <laughs> we're not, we don't have that level of resources to keep it going indefinitely, but just to help people settle in and you'll be sending people with them who know that student inside out, who've worked with them for six years so that the new staff, any questions they have, you know, they have a source for it straight away rather than having to bring me or write to me or that kind of stuff.
0: Hey, that's, uh, that's very interesting, the, the amount of effort you put into transitions, because that's where a lot of students can fall through the cracks, is in the transition from primary to secondary or from from post-primary to, to third level. So.
1: Yeah, usually like as you transition, the level of support usually drops off. And so for ourselves, we have students come in and we want, you know, if we're expecting primary schools to provide the level of support to students coming in, it, doesn't, it is only rational to expect a third level for us to provide the exact same level of support going on.
2: It doesn't only show. I'm sorry. It doesn't only really show that you put a lot of energy in uh, this, but it also shows, I think, what you just said that you really focus on the individual student, uh,
0: um, and yeah. and
2: that's that's a that's I think might be a policy problem, but also sometimes a problem in some studies in research that we tend to focus on groups or we tend to focus on programs or whatever we thought of. And we forget to really look at the individual because development, learning, etc., is is very much individual based, right? No one develops in the same way or learns in the same exact same way. Um, so we're looking for generalizations, or uh, we make programs that are designed to some kind of general population, and that's not really the reality, is it? So, I yeah. think it's very, I think it doesn't only show the energy you put in, but also that, you know, the, the really being aware of the needs of the student. I'm sorry,
1: yeah, sure. Sean. <laughs> but is it at the, as uh, Dr. Shore, I think, when, when you've met one autistic student, you've met one autistic student, as you met anybody else. Like I said, we have structures in place across pretty much everything, but there has to be a level of flexibility within those structures because, you know, if you have four kids in front of you, it might work for two of them. Well, then you need to, it, it has to adapt for the other two. And then the two that it works for mine working for them all the time. So then it has to adapt to that. So there has to be some structure, obviously, but there has to be a massive degree of flexibility. Like again, when we have parents coming in, first thing I tell the parents that I meet, and I, the five students I've got coming in next year, I've met them all individually. So because of COVID, I can't do it you know, one, uh, as a group anymore. And the first thing I tell all the parents and all the students, I do not care about state exams. Don't care at all. Um, and which is you know the, the usually, I usually get a funny look until I explain and um, it's like you're a teacher in the States good you need to care about that stuff but it's like if that's what's in the best interest of your child and getting 625 points which is the max in the Irish education system uh, and going off to take over the world is what's in the best educational interest of your student. brilliant great that's what we'll do and that's what we'll support if never sitting an exam is what's in the best interest of your child then we'll do that too and every, usually obviously it's pretty solidly in between those two extremes but you know we've students yes. do both
0: Steffi, can I come back to you and ask you a little bit about the research that you've done into students with autism and what kind of findings you have come up with that would be informative for teachers?
2: So let's start with my PhD um, research. and am trying to summarise them uh, briefly. Um, but what we uh, found was that um, students, um, in, in this case, these were special needs students, uh, but among them, um, the majority had um, uh, was on the autistic spectrum um, and they were young. So also not the, the target group of a of Graham School. So they were three to five years old when I met them and I followed them for three years and we um, provided them with hands on science tasks. And that seems very complicated for young kids. But um, these were marble tracks, for instance. Uh, and I would ask questions like, um, why does the marble always go down? Can the marble also go up? Um, and we also um, worked on some, some easy tasks with air pressure. Um, and what we found was that um, the students with autism performed as well as the students um, in, uh, who are in mainstream education. Um, and the reason might be that the tasks were hands-on so they could really explore the task with their hands. Um, and it was a one-on-one setting in which I ask questions, but in which I also, as a researcher, but in which I was also flexible in adapting to what the student said. So that was, that was, that was the first research. And what was, I think, very interesting was that whether or not the student was in special education, predicted um, their um, understanding or their development over time, But what did was the variation in questions I asked and variation answers I got. So if I would ask questions on the same basic level, for instance, obviously, the student wouldn't grow as much over the sessions, but it was also really a two way street. So, So if the student also answered on that same level and if we didn't explore other more complicated or easier levels of this task, then the student would not really learn as much. And this was uh, true across all students, so mainstream students and students with autism. Other studies I've done were with teachers, and I think this is very interesting for you to hear as well, for teachers to hear, um, because we asked teachers in primary schools who gave inclusive education and uh, who had students with autism in their classroom or had before, they were before in their classroom, And we asked them what they needed to optimally teach students with autism. And what we saw is that they they didn't want any textbook information anymore. They were done with that. They wanted hands-on practices, like hands-on examples, classroom examples, best practices. But also the teachers varied a lot in what they wanted. And we could make four groups in our analysis. So there was one group who really focused on cooperating with other teachers and specialists and parents. There was one group who really focused on the academic part. So they wanted tools to help them in the instruction, uh, tools to uh, help the students with autism to focus, et cetera. Um, There was one group who was really focused on the social aspect. So getting peers um, to interact with the students and also teach the students social skills, try to foster friendships. And the last group were uh, mostly teachers who just came in after teacher training. They felt a little bit insecure in their teaching and they wanted to uh, become more confident in teaching. And they were constantly asking themselves, am I doing this right or not? Uh, and I thought it was very interesting because apparently in the Netherlands, teacher training is not that much focused on students with special needs whether it be autism or something else and I think I mean I know some people uh, who do it in teacher training who uh, provide the education I think they're doing their best but somehow it seems disconnected from what happens really in the classroom when you're there as a teacher yeah I think these were the most important findings
0: and how do teachers like to receive information about supporting students with autism
2: all of them agreed that they didn't want any more textbooks. <laughs> they didn't want to read about it, and they would prefer uh, best practices. Um examples. There was also practice, practice, or did they want videos of best practice? What? Well, yeah, videos or experiences of other teachers, or uh, learning from the previous teacher that in the previous year, for instance, um, that was very helpful. And but most of them also said that their confidence and their way of teaching and approaching the student came with the the years, just by experience. So so really experiencing being there in the classroom and trying out different things and and really getting um, access to a student with autism and really getting to know them.
0: Steffi, a lot of your research has been with younger students, but one thing you have found is that traditional means of assessment, especially in science, Tend to underestimate the knowledge held by students with special needs generally. What kind of implications can you draw for how we assess students with special needs, but also for how we assess students more generally from from that research?
2: Well, let me start off um, by saying that. So we, we just spoke about state exams. Um, so I assume in Ireland it's you know it's a one-time thing, or maybe maybe two or three days, but. You know, it's one moment in time um, spread out over maybe a few days that doesn't really tell you anything about the learning potential or the development of the child or the student. Um, so what I did in my research and my PhD research is that we continuously looked at the level of reasoning of the child while they were working on the tasks. And I think that was a big part in, so I just said in one of my previous answers that students in the special schools, so and the majority had autism, they were performing at the same level as students in mainstream schools, in mainstream primary schools. That might be a result of our assessment system in which we literally assess every single utterance of the child and assigned it to a level and then looked at the development over time within a task, but also over different tasks. Um, so I think that's that's one thing uh, we can learn from that. Um, another thing I just touched upon is that it might not be, so you, you might think, okay, if I want to teach a student something, I have to, we call this the zone of proximal development. But So I have to teach a student, if I want to teach a student something, I have to kind of get on their level as a teacher and then rise slightly above it so that I can help students to kind of climb with me to my level. And then I helped student a little bit further by making it more complex, et cetera. But it was not so much the complexity of the questions we asked the student, it was the variety. So um, varying between more simple questions about a certain topic, about a certain scientific task, and then varying toward a more complex question and then a simple question again. So it was variation that really helped students to grow over time. Um, so that's another thing. And then I think the the, the third reason why we got uh, these results, so similar developments um, among students with autism and without, is the obvious point that it was a one-on-one situation, um, very different than in a classroom where you have, you know, all these different things going on and you need to focus. And um, the other thing was, it, it was a hands-on task. So they could really explore. And, and if they would reason about, let's say the marble going down or the marble going up, they could try it out and see whether or not their answer was right or whether or not they need to adjust their answer. Um, so I think those three or four things, I think were very important in this uh, in this study.
0: I think that one that you mentioned about the varying the questions is very interesting because like I work with initial teacher education students and we would generally encourage them to ask higher order questions. So you're kind of saying it's not just the higher order questions. It's the mix of, of the higher order and the lower order that seems to be more effective.
2: And to make it even more complicated, (laughs) I was, so I was interacting with the students uh, all the time. Um, So um, let's say, two or three years. I think two, I I have some data left. I think I, I followed them for three years, but I, I at the end, I could only analyze one and a half years um, because we had so much data. But to make it even more complex, it's not just varying as a teacher in your questions, but it's something that kind of happened or, 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 or emerged from the interaction with the students. So when I came in, trying to teach them something about this task, I did not specifically or explicitly had in mind, okay, I'm going to varying questions or okay, I'm going to ask higher level questions. It was something that emerged. And then later on in the analysis, my supervisor, and I looked at it and thought, hey, this is this is interesting. Children uh, who were not developing that well, or they, like, they, they went up a little bit in their level, but then it stayed flat. So they, there was not really a big development for these students. And then we looked at the interactions and we saw not that much variation in both the answers of the student and in my questions. But it was not something I had thought of beforehand or that I was really trying out with students. It emerged from the interaction with the student. So it's a two-way street. It, it, it depends on what you get from the student and what you're giving as a teacher. And and interestingly, for students who did very well and, and, and they developed very high levels at the end of the one and a half years I follow them. If we looked at their interactions, it was much more variation in it, but it wasn't just my variation, it was also the variation of the student. So it might be, yeah, I would say it would be an, a great, interesting study to ask teachers to vary in their complexity levels and teachers to, what you say, to, to generally ask higher level questions and see whether or not, what what difference in outcome we get. Because in, in my case, I, I would hypothesize that variation would be beneficial. But I also saw that it's not just what the teacher does, but it's also what the student gives the teacher and how they interact with each other and they come into some kind of dynamics. And you don't really, cannot really predict the dynamics beforehand and you cannot really, um, you can try to influence the dynamics obviously, but I, in this study I didn't. And it turned out like this. So
0: a Teacher can't just run on autopilot.
2: I guess so, yeah. But it would be interesting to it would be interesting to to ask some teachers to vary and some teachers to not vary and see what the differences are. Um, yeah, no, I would
1: think j- just from listening to. You, I mean, obviously, I don't teach mainstream class anymore, but um, I teach in our what we call uh, a one school, which we a uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged area, and um, so in a significant proportion of our population, let's say, education might not be as highly valued as elsewhere. I would find situations like that that. If it's all higher higher order questions, a significant number of the quarter students will just switch off. They won't want to get there, like, I can't do that. And especially if you start with that. And then, look, if you lose them at that point, getting them back is very, very difficult. And so, again, setting them up to achieve where there is a, a variation in the level of questions. So there are questions that they're getting. And then can you get to the point where you're slowly working up in the order of questions? But... If the student's initial experience is going to be negative or a failure or of not being able to do it, then the level of their engagement is going to drop off. So that is more than likely going to continue.
2: And, and for instance, we also learned that we shouldn't ask closed ended questions. But some of the kids in my, in my study really prefer these, these closed ended questions. Um, like they could just answer yes or no to and then build it up from there. But I also had one boy who was, um, I think, was very bright. And when I asked a question like that, he just didn't understand. He just wanted open-ended questions and he wouldn't really explore and and, and speak up what he had thought of. And uh, he would really get confused by these kind of lower level questions, so to say.
0: Graham, you've given us an idea of the effort you put into managing the transitions for students. And you've told us a little bit about the level of parental involvement. If we get into then, uh, say the interaction between the teacher and the student, in the special class on a day by day basis. Can you give us just a little insight into that?
1: Again, let's say obviously we're um, almost finished up the year. Um, there's tomorrow and an hour and a half on Friday, and our students are done. Actually, some of the students finished today. So um, when we're back in September, I'll um, have mostly the same staff. Um, uh, but there's always some rotation, which is good. Well, it's necessary anyway. It just happens, but it's also a good thing, uh, for students not overly reliant on any one person. There's always a bit of change within a structure they're familiar with, that kind of stuff. It's also good for upskilling our whole staff. And they all get asked at the end of the year a, a whole list of questions. But one of the questions I filled my own form out a couple of days ago, but the, one of the questions is, do you want to work in the, um, autism class? Now, vast majority of the staff, because they spoke to me about it, I'll say yes and say get very disappointed if they didn't get, didn't get their turn. But over the course of the years, every if everybody has at least two or three new staff every year, then everyone gets a level of experience. So it might be something. I'm really into this. I want to move my career towards this as a focus, which happens for some of our staff, or it's just look. I just feel more confident about it. So when I'm in my mainstream class and um, I'm teaching a particular student, I, and again, obviously, just because they're autistic doesn't mean they're in this uh, are autism uh, class, you know, plenty of students who are autistic just in mainstream school. Uh, they're just feeling more confident, like you're uh, speaking to a uh, second level. Experience and doing something rather than reading into a book breeds far more confidence in everything. Now, reading the book and the theory and having the, that knowledge is good. Having both that and the practical knowledge, better. Yeah. Um, but at the of the day, so when our news teachers staff our staff, the first thing I'm going to tell them is, all right, um, now it's their class, so. What they do is up to them, but they usually, rarely, is, they wouldn't take my advice, is that uh, I don't want them to teach anything. First couple of weeks, I just want them to do something fun with the students, get to know them, get the students comfortable with them, and vice versa. They would Now, there would be files on all our students, all confidential and GDPR and all that kind of business, but they, uh, the staff have access to them. I would strongly encourage staff, look, read this stuff. Um, no, I would, rather than have to wade through every different report, I would have to, here, read this, and that would help you. And then for those first couple of weeks, is getting to know the students. Beyond that, um, once your timetable is sorted and your, your class has an actual name on it and you're, you're doing maths or social skills or whatever it is you happen to be doing, all our students in our autism class are in our first name ter- uh, terms of all the staff. So I'm Graham. I'm not Mr. Manning. I'm not Sir. Uh, even to, inside mainstream, plenty of the students don't mainstream, half the students don't even know I'm a teacher. Those that do have no idea what my surname is. Uh, and I'm perfectly fine with that. And our students can differentiate between the two locations. So the teacher will be Mr. Delaney here and he's Sean here. And that's fine. A lot of it is about developing relationship. To be perfectly honest, now obviously there are things to be taught. If you're teaching maths class, if you're teaching maths. Uh, you have a subject plan and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, same as you would for anywhere else. And there's something targets the aim at and all that kind of stuff. But as we explained a while ago, in relation to for a lot of our students, it's a balance. It's a place to relax. So in the 40 minutes, you might do 20, 25 minutes of maths. Currently, I'm telling all our teachers: um, every, every forty-minute class, I want ten minutes outside, as long um, with the masks off, because all of our students, obviously, are wearing masks now. Because they're in a special class, they don't have to wear masks. All of our students do. You uh, students with sensory needs; they all, all wear them. In fairness to them, and um, very proud of them, make a big deal of it, and you know, yay them, because uh, they don't have to. Uh, they have an exemption, but at least ten minutes of every class is outside. And it's like, look, if you I've got a tent set out. We have big marquee tents set outside our classes. So even if it could be snowing, thunder, and lightning, you can still get outside. The school has now decided there's a great idea, and we're buying loads of them. So <laughs> regardless, it would be good news for everybody. So on their day-to-day classes, most teachers would have mainstream classes, and they would what what we call homeroom classes. Like, we don't call our special class the special class. The word special tends to have connotations with it at times. So it's called the homeroom just because... In a school context, it's meant to be as close as you can get to home. It's comfy couches and, you know, TVs and stuff like that. And your own kitchen, and we all, you know, make meals together and everybody shares the fridge. Not now, but yeah. You know. So teacher will be coming from mainstream, could be coming from teaching mainstream maths, 30 kids to down teaching, um, social skills with three kids. So it can be a significant variation in their day. Most teachers tend to, for they look the smaller, classes with a smaller number, it's more relaxing. They could literally be sitting out in the garden doing a social skills class. Like today, and you know, the weather's gorgeous outside. It's been a lovely day. Um, and I was in earlier and people doing classes outside in the garden. And I'm not saying they never do that with the larger groups, but it's more difficult for plenty of reasons. So, for the staff, they find the classes enjoyable. You get to know the students better. And again, none of this is disparaging towards mainstream teaching in any way. But you do because you're teaching in a more personal context in the smaller numbers, and you can tend to more readily see the positive impact of the work that you're doing because, you know, it is so intensive. And, you know, staff finder rewarding students, again, would regularly report that, let's say they're having difficulty, uh, the 18 students I work with currently, any difficulty in the mainstream context, because of the nature of the classes they have in their home room setting, they feel comfortable coming to me or some other staff member with lots of different issues. Um, I had a very, very different day today, uh, the kind of stuff that, again, cannot teach, uh, prepare you in teacher training in any way whatsoever. Lots of stuff around students' sexual orientation and uh, from three different avenues today. Now, all in, everybody went home happy and started, but it's kind of thing I'm used to, but it's very, very different teaching. There's no, like I said, there's no manual for it. It's when they're, I think, a general personal disposition uh, can predispose them towards this kind of teaching. And like I said, I have. Pretty much no authority in the eyes of any students inside their school. I don't care. It, it doesn't bother me. I'm quite happy like that, and it's very informal. And as you can tell from this, I tend to talk an awful lot. That can work quite well. My st- I don't want to shut up, like, <laughs> so. Please speak to me if I should. Um, but with my students, I can carry the conversation, especially when we start off when they first get into know. And I usually say lots of silly things inside in conversations, and usually I'm just trying to get laughs and jokes. Out of my students and develop a level of comfort with them that you know when there is an issue that they can come to me or whoever else.
0: Steffi you've studied the relationship between children's speech and their gestures when they're working on tasks. Can you tell us a little bit about this research and why it's important?
2: This is very fundamental research so in in research we we have a distinction between applied research and fundamental and most of my research has been applied. So more focused on a school context or uh, or a therapy context, for instance. This was very fundamental. It's actually the research of my PhD student uh, who has graduated. She's getting her PhD uh, 1st of July, Lisette. Uh, Lisette de Hoekstra. And um, why it's important is... But now we're going to talk about like, like a little bit more general instead of students with uh, autism. But what she uh, found, for instance, is that it's a big dissertation. But I'm going to take one thing out of it that I thought was very interesting. And that is generally uh, when we look at development, people say that non- the nonverbal, like the gestures develop before speech develops. And you can see that in young children, my son is uh, just turned one years old. So he's pointing at things. Uh, and making sounds or noises, but he's not really speaking yet. Um, So you could say the gestures develop for uh, speaking. But if you look at, so then there's something when children develop, um, we're talking about younger children here, um, there's something we call gesture-speech mismatch, and has been in the the scientific literature, um, and it basically means that sometimes children understand or show some kind of understanding of an ex- abstract phenomenon um, in their gestures, but they do not really um, show that in their speech yet. And what she proposes in her in her dissertation and in her work is that these gesture speech mismatches, um, they're thought of to to kind of steer development and to really boost development because the children are showing their understanding in gestures but not yet in speech. And she says, you know, that's really not. The case they don't really exist in that way, so I thought that was very interesting, and and um, I can imagine that gesture speech mismatch sounds a little bit abstract. To give you an example, um, so there's this classic task of of pouring liquid from a taller wider glass into a um, uh, or a taller smaller glass into a a shorter wider glass, and you can you can pour the liquid in one and the other, and then it's the same amount of liquid, but it looks very different. So a gesture speech mismatch might be that children say that there's more liquid in the tall and smaller uh, um, class, but they show in their gestures, they show that they are looking at the width of the glass as well, uh, which we or researchers thought, okay, so they're conveying their understanding in their gestures and they're not able to pronounce it yet or to put it in speech yet, to verbalize it. But what my PhD student found is that might not be the case. It might just be, it's not that gestures are are first, um, so to say, if you look at it closely and if you use a different way of measuring them.
0: We're coming near the end. And uh, before I ask some general questions uh, of both of you, I just want to ask one final question related to autism. And for you, Steffi, it's you have looked at the area of animal assisted interventions for students with autism. Does this work have any overlap with the education in school of such students or is that more relevant to their lives outside school?
2: In Netherlands, if um, students with autism get additional therapy, um, they will get it at um, a psychologist uh, or um, a social worker or some kind of facility um, where they give therapy. So i mostly focused on that, but there are also initiatives, uh, bringing usually dogs into schools for reading, for instance, to read uh, in presence of the dog has a calming effect on students who have trouble reading, uh, so they don't want to read in groups or in the classroom, but they prefer to read outside the classroom um, with a dog, with the presence of a dog. So that's what's happening, but I haven't studied that yet. I want to, uh, but I focus on the therapy context. And we also see that dogs coming in for other reasons, for more, like the, the more social reasons, for instance to help students uh, deal with other students, to help students relax. And some schools have a school dog, for instance. We should also be aware of the possible issues with animal welfare in this case. But I think, I think it's a good thing and I really want to research that uh, in the future.
0: And Graham, my final question before the general questions for you is when, when you agreed to, to come on the podcast, you sent me a manifesto with lots of issues <laughs> strongly about in relation to uh, autism education in Ireland. If you were to pick one of those priorities and to expand on it and to, to you know, if you had the ear of the minister or you had the ear of, you know, a, a civil servant who is open to to being persuaded... Which one would you, would you? Uh, the latter
1: doesn't exist. Um, I've had plenty of attempts at uh, those kinds of interaction. Um, I have formal letters from the last three ministers for education refusing to ever meet me. Uh, so, But I'll keep an eye on him. I'll find one eventually. Uh, the one in my local constituency is most likely to be your next minister for education. He can't get away from me. I have this one. So look, if, if I boiled it down to one, uh, I think that list I sent out had uh, 38 things wrong. With, um, autism class provision and how to fix them all bar one. there's was one I couldn't fix. 26 of them wouldn't cost a cent, to be very, clear. If I had to pick, look, the one is the most obvious one. There aren't enough special classes. I had 30 something applications for five places this year. Uh, or not I, but the school I am working. And that's standard. We've had years we have a 30 or 40 applications for no places. And um, even in May, this time of year, literally, I am two days away from being finished for the year. Not that I'll still be doing something formally finished. Um, I'm in daily contact. I was in contact with three different families this year. Uh, kids are today who are in sixth class, have a professional recommendation of needing support of an autism class in September. They have nowhere. There's nowhere to go. And that's like, that's just three today. The amount of students misplaced either in special schools when they should be in a mainstream setting or in a mainstream setting when they should have the support of a special class and that either they massively underachieve or have a very difficult, or the entire educational placement collapses altogether, where these students would excel to their own ability and with the support and that they, according to the Constitution, have a right to. The simple thing is there aren't enough places because your schools refuse to set them up. Are there some grounds that your schools can complain about training and funding and space and all those kind of things? Yeah, sure. Some of them are valid. I don't see any of those as grounds to deny a student the right to an education. Are there things wrong? Is that I just listed, it was thirty-eight, and I'm sure I could come up with more. There are loads of things wrong, but there's still even within that flawed system, there are still plenty of models of best practice. So if there are, if those models exist, then it can be done. So that's not a re- that's a reason for school to help people like myself and other annoying politicians to get them to do their job right. So if I was speaking to the minister, uh, if I had remote control on the minister, Section 37A of the 2018. Schools Admissions Act that a hand in writing it gives the minister the authority to compel schools to set up special classes. That should be done with about two years advance notice. It should be done with all the training and everything else. But what they should, they should use it now. The last two years that it's been in existence, it got used in South Dublin primary schools in Leo Varadkar's constituency. That's a politician or former teacher. just before an election. I'm sure those things were not connected at all. Last year, on the literal last day of primary school term, it got used in 35 primary schools, also in South Dublin. Wouldn't question all of those needs. The rest of the country outside South Dublin exists. Secondary, the need is far more acute. So if I were make them do anything, I would make them set up enough sufficient classes and then listen to people who give out as much as I do.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, we're on to the, the last round of questions then, which are kind of general questions that I put to every guest. And uh, I'm going to start with you, Steffi. What is school for, or what are schools for, in your view?
2: Schools help you to develop, or education helps to to become a, the person you are, to develop your potential.
0: Graham, what about you? What, what is school for, or what are schools for?
1: Schools are there to prepare you for, for life after school. And if that, invo- if that involves academic elements, but it, not solely, plenty of times in my own context, not primarily. Preparing a student and their family and a wider community in a, as broad a sense as possible for being a you know happy member of society.
0: And if I stay with you, is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? There's a few who had some negative impacts on me, <laughs> and, I, and I do mean actual impact, um,
1: but uh, we'll, we'll stick with the positive. My English teacher, in uh, when I was in senior cycle in secondary school before I left, I Really enjoyed writing. had never been kind of put, praised too much that. Not to be a woe is me, which, yeah, fact. And uh, didn't stop me. I liked writing anyway. I still liked writing. But he would have been the first teacher who would have taken work off me when it wasn't just work I was meant to be submitting. It wasn't homework. He'd like, Oh, what are you, what are you writing at the moment? Oh, give it to me. And he'd, you know, come back with plenty of notes and everything. The only annoying thing, there was no computer. So I was right, rewriting all of this. It was really time consuming. But showing that active interest in something I obviously had a passion. Out, I'm not saying I had a particular ability, but I thought, you know, it meant a lot to them. and I try and see that in my own students. No, it doesn't have to be there, but what are they interested in? I try and meet them there. And The amount of hours I've spent playing Minecraft, although it is quite quite fun.
2: And Steffi, is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? I knew this question was coming, and I just told my partner, um, oh, I, this is coming, and I, I've had some really good teachers but there's not one that really stood out to me or maybe I'm forgetting someone and then uh, my partner said why don't you say your daddy <laughs> because both, both my parents were teachers and then I thought while we were talking, I think it's really true um, because both my parents are teachers. My mom in uh, primary school, in the primary school I was in, actually, um, she didn't teach me. She had other class, she, she taught a different year, but she was in my school, um, or I was in hers, I guess. Um, and then I moved to secondary school, and there my uh, dad was a biology teacher. Uh, but so I saw them both teach, and um, I also teach, but I don't teach. I mean, I don't teach in secondary school, I don't teach in primary school, but I teach university students. And I think what I learned from my mother, she's very much um, um, structured and in control, and she prepares a lot, and she has everything neatly ordered, and she really knows what she wants to teach that day. My dad, on the other, on the other hand, is very flexible and and more might be also generalization and there's obviously maybe a gender effect here but he he really enjoys the surprise element I I think he was he he was standing on his desk with like a model using biology like a skeleton model and I think he fell off at some point and and that was the running joke in school for years but I think Having them both and seeing them both work and using their best practices, so to say, and combine these two, that's really helpful for me in teaching university students. And I think that had an impact on me if I look at it now.
0: What is your vision of an educated person, Steffi?
2: These questions are so hard. I think someone who keeps wants to learn and then knows that even though he or she is educated. There's so much more to learn. So staying curious, I would say.
0: Graham?
1: Everybody's educated. It's just to what degree. But uh, kind of echoing what um, Steffi would say, uh, again, and I'm stealing a quote. I don't know whose it is. I was um, No matter how educated you are, I just signed up for another year of college next year. Was it the quote, every day is a learning day. So like I said, you you're just never, there's no such thing as you finished. in my opinion. Yeah, Regardless of if you may finish formal education or not, there's no such thing as being finished being educated. And staying with you, Graham, who or what inspires you? I'm so going we'll get corny here. Uh, my parents, my brothers, my wife, my children, my friends, You know, people I surround myself with, people I love. Uh, like I said before, I've, I always find it very odd being that much as you can find you know, someone's achievements inspiring, being inspired by someone you don't know. I, I, I'm not saying it's you know, just for me personally. I just find it odd. It's like, no, I know these people. I you know, know the ins and outs of their lives. I find that far more inspiring. And obviously the things that they've done for me and continue to do for me.
0: And who or what inspires you, Steffi?
2: Yeah, so now I'm echoing you. <laughs> Great. Um, my children, um, because they're, they're very young. They're one uh, and four years old. And I just constantly see the world through their eyes. Where I, when, I, when especially my four-year-old tells me something, I realize that the way she looks at the world is not necessarily the way adults look at the world. And I find it very inspiring. And finally, for you, Steffi, have you a favorite writer, book or blog about education? Yeah, I knew this was coming as well. (laughs) So I I thought about it. So I'm a researcher. And and even though there there are obviously studies that have been performed well and others that may not have been performed that well. But I think if you look at if you want knowledge and if you want to be more educated about for example students with autism or um or uh, maybe other topics you're interested in and you're a teacher and you're not an academic you know google has this great source um, scholar google scholar scholar scholar.google.com and you can it it works as normal google uh, so you can just type in a certain topic and you'll get articles scientific articles And lately, more and more of these articles are open access or there's some kind of copy stored online that you can access, even though you're not in the university library system. And I think that would be really helpful um, if you want to know what kind of research is out there on a certain topic.
0: And for you, Graham, the final one, have you a favorite writer, book or blog about education? I've never read a
1: uh, blog on education. I have just two different studies and stuff. I have a kind of mini library in my own office. Like I said, when I go up to the, my lo- local college, where like as I just mentioned, I'll be going back to, so I'll be playing their um, SEN library another visit. And basically, I photocopy anything that has the word autism in it uh, and see, because it's a lot cheaper. You know, I haven't got the money to buy all this stuff. So it's more, I dip in and out of things when, you know, is there a specific thing I'm interested in? Like, um, Steph, you just uh, mentioned there, type in a thing and stick scholar after it. And yeah, you in know, inside in Google Color you will find endless examples. When I'm usually talking to kind of new either parents or um, newer teachers to work with, but when they're asking, I don't recommend kind of you know some kind of dense, heavy kind of theoretical thing or practice stuff because it tends to turn people off. And you know, even I don't like reading them all that often. One of the uh, books I do mention uh do uh, The Reason I jump and uh, because as I knew this was coming. I double-checked the author this time. I'm going to mangle this pronunciation, so I apologize in advance. Uh, Naoki Higashida. Um, it's basically about a, th- a 13-year-old autistic boy, and translated from Japanese, and it's a really, really interesting book. There, And there are other books of that ilk that I write are far more accessible if someone is interested in the topic you know, like we were saying earlier, uh, about different order questions and, um, you know, to keep someone's interest, st- start on a level in which they can gain entry into the topic rather than all higher order kind of stuff. So I usually, if, if I'm asked, that's the kind of thing I recommend. Beyond that, one of the best things I read is, uh, beyond, honest, it's a WhatsApp group. The only thing I don't like about this is I didn't think of it. Um, a colleague of ours in Tullo, uh, Pam, basically set up a WhatsApp group for teachers in uh, secondary Irish autism classes. And there's about 220, 230 people who do my job one way or another, or our job, in it. It is the best resource I've ever come across. You post a question on there now, everyone has to shut up by 9 o'clock, so we have 50 minutes left. If I posted a question on there now, I'd have half a dozen responses by 9 o'clock. It is the best source of information I've ever
0: come across. It's a great idea. And I'm sure lots of other special interest groups of teachers would be interested in that as well. Doing that. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And that recommendation of the WhatsApp group for teachers of autistic students was made by Graham Manning, bringing this week's Inside Education to a close. My guests this week were Graham Manning, who is a teacher in a secondary school in Cork, and Steffi van der Steen, who is a professor at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Towards the end of the podcast, both Steffi and Graham noted that they knew some of the questions that were coming up. That is because when we first recorded the interview... I lost most of what we discussed due to laptop troubles at my end. Therefore, I want to particularly thank Graham and Steffi for agreeing to re-record this interview one week later. Remember, you can listen back to this or any previous episode of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on the Podcasts tab. You can get a copy of my book, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, in your local library or in online bookstores. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. You can email me by writing to InsideEducation podcast at yahoo.com. Until the next time on Inside Education, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Thank you for listening.